Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley talking to you on episode 119 of the Criterion Reflections podcast as we continue to make our way through the films of 1972 affiliated with the Criterion Collection. We are here to talk about Shaft's Big Score from 1972, directed by Gordon Parks, a sequel to the breakout sensational hit starring Richard Roundtree. Uh, Shaft's Big Score is kind of a continuation of... uh, of a franchise, I guess you could say. I mean, Shaft has definitely had a good run. And uh, Shaft's big score came out uh, just a little less than a year after the uh, the big breakout hit. And so we're going to be kind of talking a little bit about black exploitation and sequelitis and uh, just some of the uh, features of this film that make it, uh, you know, somewhat interesting and, and, uh, memorable but also uh, some of the limitations of uh, what happens when a unique property kind of has to recreate that formula that brought such great success and sometimes ends up giving in to uh, you know kind of lower common denominator uh, type of elements but uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about another film called top of the heap these are two films currently being featured in the criterion collections beyond black exploitation bundle and um, got a couple good guests, uh, guys that you've heard before uh, on this program, and I'm very happy to welcome them back. So let's start by welcoming back Richard Doyle. Richard, how's it going tonight? Hey, it's going good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I haven't counted up, but I think you've been a pretty steady presence here for most episodes lately. So thank you once again for stepping into the breach with me. It's my and- pleasure. Oh, excellent. Glad to have you. And then uh, coming up on fairly short notice, uh, Jason Beamish. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, we were just kind of kind of stumbled into each other on TikTok the other day, and I had <laughs> <laughs> put out a little invitation saying, hey, I wouldn't mind getting some more guests on. Not that Richard and I couldn't have a fine conversation, but I'll, I'll just be very, very uh, point blank here. I put a, I've got about 5,000 some followers on TikTok, which is a, not huge, but it's a pretty decent little pack of folks out there who seem to like what I do fiddling around on that app. And I thought, well, you know what? One thing I would like to add to this conversation is a person of color, somebody who's mm. not necessarily even African-American, uh, but you know, somebody who maybe comes from a, an ethnic minority, at least as far as uh, North America is concerned. Uh, you know, Richard, Jason, and I, I mean, I'll just say we're three kind of middle-aged white guys <laughs> talking, <laughs> talking about this movie and, uh, you know, nothing that stops us from having a great conversation about it. And I expect that we will, uh, but it would be nice to diversify, uh, you know, the, the chat a little bit. I, I definitely would like to hear more about what the, these two films mean to people, whether they grew up with them, you know, if they're, if they're a little bit up there in years or if they're younger people who are just discovering it. So, um, you know, the, the truth is though, I just don't have a lot of contacts in my life that, that fit those categories, both rabid cinephile and African-American or whatever. So, uh, or persons who are willing to jump into a podcast and shoot off their opinions as glibly as, uh, the three of us are prone to do. So, you know, I did want to just put that little disclaimer out there, but uh, I know Jason, you, you saw my clip and kind of threw your name in the hat and it's like, absolutely. Let's go ahead and get Jason in the mix here and hear what us uh, guys have to say about this film so i've done a little intro here uh richard i'm going to give you the first shot at it what did you think about shaft's big score and how do we want to get the conversation rolling uh it's a film i've seen before i had a Mm -hmm. 
like a little one of the old flipper disc DVDs of it. Oh yeah, um, that I got for a dollar at Big Lots. And like it had the the pan and scan on one side and the uh, one yeah, screen on like the other. The, <laughs> and like the cardboard sleeve with a yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have watched it once and I thought, well, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and when it when it came up uh, like on on your calendar, I was thinking, well, you know, I was here to talk about Shaft and I should maybe give this one another shot and I feel like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I I think that's pretty much it. it it's a serviceable follow up to a, a surprisingly successful hit there. Um, and uh, I didn't mention I, I said that it was part of this bundle, but it is also going to be featured on the upcoming uh, deluxe edition, 4K even uh, Criterion Collection release, a bona fide spine number and everything uh, of Shaft, directed by Gordon Parks, and uh, Shaft's big score is going to be included in that package, but I think it's going to be a Blu-ray only, kind of a supplement. It's not even really billed as a double feature edition. It's just Shaft is the main thing, and then Shaft's big score is kind of one of the extras that are part of the package there. So, okay, cool. Well, Jason, how about your experience with uh, the Shaft franchise? You know, you were not part of that original episode that Richard and I recorded a couple of years ago. Maybe I'll refer back to that a little bit. But uh, tell me just about your first impressions, or had you seen this film before? I had seen this film a couple of times. Um, okay. I used to have it on VHS that I got oh. with uh, when I got a copy of Shaft originally. And when I watched it the first time, um, obviously, I enjoyed shaft and i thought it was something that my my brain was not prepared for <laughs> okay and so it explore really, that a little bit yeah go ahead well, yeah i mean you know growing up in the suburbs of cleveland not really having i had a diverse high school but it wasn't really a overly diverse high school we would say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so i didn't have uh, my exposure levels were minimal when sure. it came to black art Mm-hmm. So when I watched Shaft, I, it kind of just took me by surprise. I wasn't ready for it. Then when I watched Shaft's big score, I'm like, well, this, much like the rest of you, well, that's a movie. <laughs> um, yeah. But I'll tell you what, revisiting it this time, and, and I also read a, a few things, it made me realize that when they greenlit Shaft, the it was obvious, well, not obviously, if you listeners aren't aware it was originally a white detective named john shaft and after sweet sweetback and they saw that there was value in it sweet sweetback's badass song mm-hmm. uh then they saw that they were getting a lot of african americans in to the theaters to see they warner quickly said hey we got to do something so they switched shaft around and so it was a quick and dirty movie and it was great and then they green light shaft's big score but they give it the of the era budget for a crime film yeah and so it just looked pretty compared to the grittier films in that 71 to 75 time frame yeah this definitely feels like a franchise that's really kind of taking it to the next level there yeah they 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 recognized value and they put the money behind it yeah, yeah. Well, so so let's just talk a little bit about this transition that happened between the original Shaft, uh, which really was, you know, kind of a you're not going not to call it a character study per se, but it, it definitely had more of those elements. We're, we are, like Jason said, introduced to 
something unique. I mean, there had been black leading men, or at least there was a black leading man, uh, namely Sidney <laughs> Poitier. <laughs> you know, he was like the guy uh, who sort of stood forth as the uh, black protagonist that uh, millions of movie lovers uh, and, and casual viewers uh, appreciated and respected. And, and Sidney definitely had a, a fantastic screen presence and charisma. I'm a big fan of his and uh, all of that talked about him on several different episodes here over the past few years but um but shaft brought more of that kind of militant attitude a little more of that swagger that that charisma uh he's a little more reckless a little bit more brash down to earth you know uh you know pretty overtly sexual uh and also uh willing and able to back himself up in the in the action you know fisticuffs department all of that so that really was, you know, a breakthrough and, and not quite as nihilistic or, or as, you know, out on the, the fringes as Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song was. Uh, Shaft had a lot more of that more conventional machismo that, uh, you know, guys of all races, all ethnicities could, could, could appreciate. Uh, but he really was obviously, uh, you know, addressing the, the black audience uh, Gordon Parks himself being a black director and uh, a pretty accomplished um, kind of artist and creative presence himself. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I did, had not really seen or heard much about Gordon Parks prior to the episode that Richard and I did on Shaft back in April of 2020, kind of the early-ish days of COVID. And, and uh, you know, that, that was an interesting experience, just kind of having that movie pop up on the channel. And as I said in that episode, we actually even went backwards a little bit <laughs> from my timeline because I just thought, well, this is a kind of unique opportunity to talk about Shaft um, you know, on my podcast because it was kind of almost like the Bruce Lee thing. I, I really would have never envisioned this as a Criterion film some years ago, but, but here it is now about to be released on disc. Uh, Richard, what are your thoughts? You know, we talked about Shaft, like you say, back in uh, uh, you know, April of 2020. Um, do you have a chance to revisit that episode at all, or, or uh, you know, what, what what do you recall from that conversation and and kind of the the points we raised at that time? Uh, no, I, I actually I didn't get a chance to revisit it. Um, I'm trying to remember if I remember much about that episode. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we we did talk about it. I mean, you know, we we got into the the black exploitation, what what it is as a genre, what was it yeah. doing, what was its kind of unique place in in uh, you know kind of movie culture and fandom and all of that. And we really are talking about like the first half of the 1970s, you know. Yeah, it's all about 77. Yeah, yeah, out of steam. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, so, so Shaft kind of made this breakthrough you know, Jason kind of did a nice summary of the transition that that character went from the kind of the, you know, the dime store paperbacks, uh, you know, kind of action oriented type of reading material. They tuned him into sort of the emerging you know, black consciousness. Uh, one of the characters, uh, is a black militant, you know, kind of the Black Panther type of thing. So there's there's kind of uh, a little nod into what was happening in the black community, those who were more you know, politically outspoken, as well as uh, some of these, you know, perhaps even questionable stereotypes, you know, uh, you know drug pushers and, and pimps and gangsters and all that type of thing. Um there, there was a earthiness and a, a realness, I, I think, connected with audiences. 
And uh, with all that money in the bank and with the back in those days, especially, I think people did repeat viewings, you know, because they really dug this character and wanted to just try to get into this world. Coming up with a second film, bringing that character back, uh, there's a certain pressure that comes with it, uh, but also, you know, a great opportunity to stake out a, a place of, of repeat business and you know, all of the other things that, that come with it. So I don't know. What did you think, Richard, as far as we get, you know, this Shaft character, uh, as the tagline says, you liked it before he's coming back with more. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought they kind of lost something that was so appealing about Shaft, which is uh, sort of, it, it feels sort of very authentically set in the like sort of downtown New York neighborhoods. In the the first one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. When I I think of the movie Shaft, I think often of like footage of him like sort of striding through like Times Square. Mm -hmm. And uh, this one sort of feels a little bit studio bound and also set out in the suburbs in the in the 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 house of the the woman. Like, yeah, is that supposed to be in killed? Queens, or I, I mean, it looked like a pretty nice place. You know? Yeah, it, it was a strikingly odd setting. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm in two minds about it. When it's it's nice to depict, you know, somebody uh, a successful African American living mm-hmm. in a neighborhood that's fairly nice, but it also feels like the, the movie has kind of lost its roots. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I also thought they sort of strangely kind of doubled down on the shaft character to the point where he becomes a little bit unlikable in this film, which is sort of a strange mistake. Well, tell me about that. What, what do you think made him unlikable? Um, they sort of amp up his aggression to the point where he seems a little bit unreasonably aggressive in this film to me. Like toward, toward who, like who are, are you thinking to, of? Um, uh, Towards Julius Harris's cop character, yeah, one yeah. thing like who doesn't seem to be doing anything in in the early scenes, and Shaft's immediately against him, right? Yeah, and and he does some like sort of getting into the plot, but Shaft does some weird things in this movie. Like he goes all like trying to trace down the guy who was he who was the partner of the fellow who's killed. Goes mm-hmm. out to his apartment to look for him finds his mistress instead sleeps with her and then leaves without talking to the guy. So Shaft seems to do some sort of like, seems to be a, a bad detective in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he's been diverted. You know, he, he, get, yeah. he went out there with business on his mind and he, he uh, leaves with ple- with his pleasure being satisfied yeah. and, and it realizes he's got to hit the back door there. It's kind of, I guess what I'd say is it feels to me like somebody thought to themselves, well, this is what people liked about Shaft, so we're mm-hmm. going to double down on it. And, and he kind of loses a bit of the the, the character detail and becomes a little bit of a an, an odd, like, like abstract character in this one. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, what do you thought? What do you think about that, Jason? I mean, um, I don't know how much you've watched the two films back to back or really thought about the progression of the character from one film to the next, but uh, yeah. How does, how does Richard's observation land with you? Well, that's sort of how I felt when I watched him originally mm-hmm. uh, way back when. Um, so that, that heroic element from the first mm-hmm. was definitely pulled back. I really wish that I had read the books because then I could actually answer that question to say whether or not 
in Shaft's big score, he's more similar to the book John Shaft versus the first film John Shaft, or how that kind of plays off. It's interesting that they rejected, apparently rejected Ernest Tidyman's original idea for this movie, and it became the second Shaft novel. Yeah, the second novel was called Shaft Among the Jews. Is I'm glad right? that one didn't yeah. get used. Yeah, just the title yeah. itself is kind of <laughs> problematic, you know, yeah. especially knowing the history of, you know, tension, let's just say, between the black community, especially you know, the black Muslims and Jewish people in general, uh, overt anti-Semitism in, in many instances. Like, that could have really gone off the rails very, very badly. So... Thankfully, it seems like probably wiser heads prevailed. But I guess my observation here was that, you know, and I didn't rewatch the original Shaft prior to watching this one just now, but it felt to me like the first film Shaft was working more sort of in cooperation with the police and and kind of helping to figure out this case. Whereas here, he was much more tangled up with the mobs and the gangsters and the police were more of an antagonistic force kind of moving in on on his own business where he didn't really want to have anything to do with them so i don't know if that was an intentional choice because they didn't want shaft to be too much of a a sellout you know or too cooperative with the man uh, maybe asserting a little bit more of an independent streak or he's willing to definitely you know break the rules color outside the lines do things his own way but it, it felt to me like he was more i don't know what you would say just more complicit with the criminal element that was going on here. Whereas in the first film, he was really straddling both worlds as he does here, but with more of an idea of let's, let's stop the bad guys and, and pursue some degree of justice without being a total sellout. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's yeah. without derailing thing. That's kind of what I really liked about Sam Jackson's version in uh, the two yeah. thousands. No, and, and I haven't seen that, so I'll oh. I'll file that away because I do feel like I want to follow this saga, yeah. including Shaft Goes to Africa, which is not going to be part of the Criterion release because uh, presumably Gordon Parks did not direct that one. No, so, he didn't. Yeah. I've, ne- I've never seen that one either. I, I like to call it Shaftrica. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, do we want to do a, I mean, we're kind of deep into the conversation a little bit here, but do we want to do a, just a quick sketch summary for maybe any listeners who recall watching it, want to hear the conversation, but can't exactly remember what it was all about. <laughs> I don't know, Jason, you want to give us a little sketch of at least the, sure. the main themes or developments of this story. I'm actually going to go back to one of my go-to uh, books on black exploitation, uh, Josiah Howard's black, black exploitation cinema. Cause you know, he's, a better writer hey, than bring, bring in the experts. Absolutely. I like um, that. Yeah. Shaft's Big Score is a rare sequel. Now, this is where it's going to lose some people. That surpasses the quality of the original. <laughs> Cleverly written yeah. by Shaft screenwriter Ernest Tideman. Excitingly directed, beautifully photographed, featuring a spectacular big-budget helicopter boat automobile finale. John Shaft is here. Uh, here has much in common with the high-flying international sophisticate James Bond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Roundtree returns in the role of Shaft, a hip detective who has a way with the ladies. Uh, his one more time uh, star surpasses expectation. And he has here uh, New York City detective John Shaft is asked to help find the Harlem number dealer's murderer. 
So it's a little more on the, like we've been saying, the other side of the law, just skirting both to get the information that he needs to solve the crime. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with his observations that this is a more polished movie Mm -hmm. and from the sense of sort of spectacle and, you know, kind of amping up all the elements, um, it is definitely giving you more of what you liked about the first one in a certain sense. Uh, more sex, um, more car chases, you know, bigger, bigger settings, bigger props, bigger stunts, you know, it's, it's all elevated. The one thing they can't say that they outdid was, was the musical score. Mm-hmm. Although I think Gordon yeah. Parks did a, a decent job. Uh, Richard, you want to talk a little bit about the music there? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Parks was a musician. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think his score is fine, except I think his version of sort of his sort of Shaft theme song for this one is not so hot. Like, was it blowing your mind or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, it feels a bit like a parody of the Shaft yeah. theme song. Yeah. Uh, but generally, I mean, it's okay. I mean, I gather that not surprisingly, Isaac Hayes wanted a lot more money to. Mm-hmm to replicate his Oscar winning score. And I think they probably should have invested in that. Yeah. Yeah. He gave him one song called type thing. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't recall actually hearing when I was watching. The I, movie. I, yeah. Well, it, it sort of blends into the mix, but Bobby Womack, who was hired to do the vocals, his voice isn't all that different from Isaac Hayes. And so, yeah, I thought I, it was actually right. Um, Womack, I thought... is, Womack is across 110th street. Oh, you know, yeah, you're right. I because I just watched 110th Street. Yeah. That's where it, I got it mixed up. Okay, it, it's OC Wright who had a hit the year before. Okay, right. And he, so he he did he did he sang this one, and it, he's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it bumps. You know, it's got that you know it's got that funky you know vibe going on, and and it, it's very serviceable without just repeating. I mean, I guess if they had tried to redo the the original Shaft theme, that would have felt extremely derivative so you you do with what you with, with what you've got uh but yeah I, I agree hayes probably just priced himself out of the market or you know they they maybe just felt like they could do well enough and put the money into helicopters and boat chases <laughs> and and all the permits that it takes to you know blow up stuff uh in the you know in the boroughs of brooklyn and and the vicinity there so yeah, so basically you're right. You've got a kind of a, a pretty basic procedural. You know, somebody's bumped off. Who's the killer? Where's the missing money? Who's gonna you know get the upper hand in this little turf war between rival gangs? Uh, you got a little tension. It's like kind of replicating the first film of black gangs versus white gangs of the mafia. Um, what did you think about the the white villain, the the clarinet guy, Mescalco? Is that his name or Mescalco? Um, I thought he was all right. I mean, he definitely had that kind of smarmy Bob Guccione thing going on there, you know, as a as kind of a uh, you know kind of a playboy tough guy. I mean, all, all of the uh, stock characters, I guess, were there. You know, Bumpy comes back, uh, but what do you guys think of just the uh, you know? The, the heavies uh, of the film and uh, the ne'er-do-wells that are kind of providing some of that grit. I thought the clarinet playing mafia guy is a good idea. I'm not sure I liked that actor a whole lot. But, okay. Yeah. But I mean, he seemed a little colorless at times, you know, like a little, 
like a little flat, but it, it's yeah, yeah. It's some of his idea. banter, he's trying to sort of you know set his hot-headed sidekick straight, and yeah. you know talk guy him down the, and all that. After the Rockford Files, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely looked like you know uh, stock player that you've seen in a lot of TV shows, but can't quite put a, a name or mm-hmm. face on it. Yeah, it was it was nice to see Moses Gunn back again. I didn't. I didn't think he had a big enough role. <laughs> Is that the guy who played Bumpy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was he was cool. He definitely, yeah. you know, he he knows how to handle a cigar. <laughs> he knows how to, you know, kind of give that kind of stare and, and all those other elements that just make him a pretty imposing, you know, tough guy that you you know, you you, you know you're up against it if you're gonna try to cross Bumpy. And then there's the eroticism. Um <laughs> Some of that was uh, fairly, fairly uh, humorous. I felt, you know, the uh, the way they use that kind of uh, uh, the, the glass with all the little etchings, the was a yeah. lenticular glass uh, <laughs> to kind of uh, I don't know, just set a mood. Uh, there was the uh, the the woman and the the two different versions of body paint, and that kind of whole uh, was it Mother Ike's. Uh, kind of bar slash uh, underground casino. So while while Shaft is kind of getting the stuffing beat out of him in the alley, the intercuts with uh, you know women and and the and the body paint there that that was kind of an, a memorable sequence, I guess. And a, to me, it felt like pretty pretty legit fan service. <laughs> uh, this is this is what you came for, right? Or at least one of the elements. I like the the use of two different speeds of film in that one. That he yeah. Being- beaten up in slow motion while the dancers mm-hmm. were uh, normal speed. Uh, the, yeah. club, the club is weird. I, I could never <laughs> quite figure out what was going on in it. <laughs> like upper, like fairly wealthy couples seem to watch women dance in body paint and clap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when they're done with that, they head to the little casino in the back there, which is basically looks like a, a roulette wheel and a craps table. Um yeah. But you know, I guess those are just like indicators or, or signposts of some of the illicit business that's going on there, which is where all this all this cash is being accumulated. Um, and then there's this little kind of social message about you know these these kind of you know, hoodlums who are you know bilking money out of out of the poor folks, but some are spending it on themselves, and and others uh, ask to be the guy who ends up dying in the opening scene there his his plan was to take all of these illicit winnings and build a children's health clinic <laughs> up in harlem there so well isn't that noble <laughs> uh i don't know what would you guys think just of the uh, the the sort of the social uh commentary aspects of the film and and how it wanted to kind of maybe address and make itself a little bit uh, relevant uh, for, for, I don't know, for the sake of, I don't know, some kind of social consciousness or something like that. Uh, that's the part that felt more exploitation than yeah the rest of it. Yeah, and just kind of not really convincing or just kind of Well, you want to try and you're trying to justify decisions mm-hmm. that you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. It's neat, but that's not what you're here for. Right. Yeah. I guess maybe they're, they're trying to take some of the edge off of the, or, or introduce a little bit of nuance that these, these criminal enterprises 
may in some ways serve a social need that the the mainstream system isn't quite meeting or, or fulfilling um well taking I mean, care of kids or families whatever uh, yeah and i can buy into that uh, that idea mm-hmm. um but it just felt a little tacked on it, it's partly you know the movie is good numbers guy versus bad numbers guy and something's got to distinguish mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. so so the the good numbers guy is into charity. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but you know, what do you think? I mean, other than being a sequel, connecting with the fans, people who like Shaft and are willing to line up and and shell out a few bucks to see it in a new adventure. You know, it seems to me like this movie's reason for existence was kind of the big epic set piece, the the big finale, as well as. Uh, showing staff, Shaft, you know, the super stud, you know, betting a couple different women, uh, some of that kind of risque humor. Yeah, I think I can put a hand on her, <laughs> that type of thing. Uh, those were kind of the the signature notes that, you know, I think expanded the, the Shaft mythology and, and perhaps uh, made him live up to the promise that, was seen in that character in, in that first film that says, wow, this is a, this is a unique personality that we can explore, take into new directions, new places. You know, he did, I guess they did the three main feature films and then the shaft franchise went into, I guess, TV made for TV movies is what I understand. I, at first I yeah. thought it was maybe a TV series, but it was really more like, when they used to have like what the Tuesday night movies, they did like seven 90 minute type of yeah. films. It's a little complicated though, because there's, okay. a, there's a few like crime series in this era, like Columbo and McMillan's mm-hmm. life were all yeah. really like movie length episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think it was in that model. Right. Right. So they could expand the story. They could, they could stretch it out. Obviously for TV, they would have to tone down uh, the sex in particular, uh, yeah, there were some, there was some, uh, you know, some, some violence, you know, some sh- shootings and stuff like that. It seems like they, they, they did kind of ramp up some of the, you know, the blood and guts elements a, a bit more, I guess an R rated movie for 1972 is going to, going to go down that road a little bit. So I have sort of a cynical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Which is sure. like the, the, here, by the time they even make this draft sequel, like the genre is sort of taking off, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you, you notice if you look at all the films in the genre is most of them are not studio films. Right. 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 This, they're, this is, they're, mm-hmm. they're fairly independent guys who are making films with some pretty rough content. Yeah. And, I, and it feels to me like this film feels like, so this is the studio black exploitation film and what they can do that the other guys can't is put a lot of money into it. Yeah, exactly. And have a big, sort of a big chase at the end that nobody, you know, AIP can't afford to do a stage of chase like that at the end. Right. Um, but I think it kind of ran out of steam pretty quickly and hence the move to TV. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think that the audience, that that's what the audience for these films was looking for. I think they were looking like the, the more successful ones are the independents <laughs> that are made for cheap, but they have some yeah. kind of angle or some kind of element to them that kind of blows it up and, and maybe they are less formulaic and less, you know, uh, play by the rules cautious. 
Yeah, I think so. Well, I'm, and they're funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's they're, I mean, they're, they're entertaining. <laughs> yeah, well, like Shaft, the the Shaft series, it's putting a black detective into a typical white action movie. Mm-hmm. They already had plenty of that mm-hmm. of the action, this style of action film. Um, yeah, yeah. So in some ways, Shaft is kind of like a representation of the black action figure who's kind of made it. He's like big studio legit, you know, yeah. uh, that comparison you read earlier, Jason, about a, a sort of a black James Bond makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense to me. That's exactly what they were aiming for here. And they sort of put him up on that pedestal. Like, you know, the, you know, in, in fact, the, the third film takes him to Africa. So now you're getting into this kind of globe trotting exotic locale type of thing, which of course was a, a, a hallmark of the James Bond series and continues to be, uh, you, you don't just have him fighting around London. Maybe there's some spots in England, but then he's going to go off and do the big pieces everywhere else in the world. Yeah. And I think what Warner brothers quickly learned was that the market that was looking to be filled mm-hmm. was telling the stories more so like, Sweet, sweet back where it is the person that everybody can relate to. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, obviously, that's not a comedy in any sense, but uh, like when you get to like Rudy Ray Moore stuff, you know, it's there to it's it's an exaggeration by of course, but you know, it's it's letting them see themselves on the screen. Yeah, yeah. It's people who are still living in the hood or in or maybe out in the country or whatever but but people who are much more down to earth accessible Mm -hmm. in some ways shaft was almost like you know gets to that sort of superhuman too good to be true (laughs) you know he's just like got everything going on which is which is cool but sort of like superman um you know you run out of uh, interesting situations to put him in after a while right yeah um you know there there are some attempts at humor in this film, uh, the old lady coming out the elevator, you know, mind your fucking manners. I mean, as I was watching that and you realize there's like about three or four seconds of silence, which are kind of built in because presumably the audience is all in hysterics overhearing something like that, which probably in 1972, that, oh, that was kind of a, didn't expect that <laughs> to hear that coming, but mm-hmm. it's maybe a little bit more played out now. And if you're watching by yourself, it's like, hmm, okay, <laughs> maybe not the, the, you know, uh, the gut. I'd still hit. <laughs> yeah. So I bet, but what, what did you think about just the, uh, the, the banter and the characterization? I, I guess I'm getting the feeling that it was pretty well written for sure. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. So what other elements uh, kind of stood out? I mean, what, what else uh, kind of, or pretty much are we, are we of the, of the mind that this is pretty adequate, you know, solid action flick? Um, I mean, what'd you think about the, the final, the chase scene? I guess if that's the, that's the big, you know, that that's what made the poster. (laughs) (laughs) That poster definitely sketches it out very accurately. I thought it could stand to be about half as long, but it was pretty good. Yeah. Well, I think they probably spent a lot of money on it and wanted yeah. to get uh, you know maximum <laughs> value. And and obviously, you know, you you want to, you know, pad the film out a little bit just to make it feel like you're seeing and a real real production there. The cost yeah. of those shots 
dictate not cutting them from the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the dude in the helicopter, not a very good shot. <laughs> no, no. The gangsters are thoroughly dumb. I don't know why, I don't know why they're chasing the shaft when he's got their boss in the car and they kill their boss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're the ones who caused the boat to blow up the knees in the boat. Well, yeah. Like I said, it's a entertaining movie. Yeah. And it's very yeah. well made. That doesn't necessarily mean that it all makes sense. Yeah, don't don't think about it too much there, right? So, yeah, uh, and even even the ambiguous ending there with the the sack of money just sitting there in the weeds in the navy yard there, um, it's not really clear is Shaft going to go back and get it? Uh, it's just kind of left sitting there. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, anything else you guys want to say about Shaft's big score? No. Okay. I have a qu- I have a question yeah. about the beginning of the movie. Sure. Um, so. The guy who gets killed by the bomb call shaft and says, I'm in big trouble, right? Yeah. Come down here right away. Why? Did he yeah. What, what, what was he going to do? I mean. The, what, what comes later on is he was intending to buy out his partner with that money. Yeah. And his, and his partner killed him to take the money and not be bought out. But I don't understand why he called shaft in the opening scene. Yeah. I don't know right. why he thought he was in trouble. You know, and, and I don't understand actually why he hid the money. It's like he knew his partner was going to kill him. But the later explanation doesn't match well, that. Well, he put it in a casket that ironically enough, he ends up getting yeah. buried in. Like, did he expect that maybe his life was in danger? That's was shaft being called down there to, you know, perhaps serve as a bit of protection, like a bodyguard or was the sequence just designed so that shaft could be in his car while the opening credits rolled over the music playing in the background. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe I, that was it. It's just a device. <laughs> I think it's because the, Thinking about the the John Shaft from the modern sequels, okay, you know he's a man of the community. So if you're in trouble, one person you could reliably contact oh, is John yeah. Shaft. Sure, except and he can help you. Except I don't know why he thought he was in trouble. Was my question because well, the, 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 the later explanation is that he was going to buy his partner out. So mm-hmm. there isn't any indication that he thought he was in trouble. Well, unless he knows what sort of business they're in. And it's not the kind of business that you could just buy yourself out of. Yeah. Without well, Kel- trouble. Yeah, right. Kelly's got a quarter of a million dollars in gambling debts, which yeah. just happens to be the amount that Asby's going to give him to buy out his half of the business and presumably try to go legit. Um, Sort of feels like you should have called Shaft a little earlier. Then. Yeah, and right. and you know, get that money out of a paper bag and into some secure spot that Kelly doesn't know about. Because yeah. you you assume that he wants to get it out of the safe because Kelly knows it's in the safe. I don't know. It is it is kind of convoluted and probably just a big MacGuffin that doesn't really <laughs> mean anything in the in the end. But it does give you uh, the opportunity to put that money in the coffin. And that, that, that scene in the graveyard, that was that was pretty brutal, you know, pulling the body out and then dumping him in the hole there and gunning everybody down. I mean, that was just, yeah, I guess, I guess you got to have some bare knuckle action to round out the whole package, right? I mean, All you're right. never going to talk this deep about like, Death Wish Two, <laughs> are you? It's, it's like <laughs> uh, it's just what I do on my podcast. I just oh, start no. to slice uh, it. No, that's, that's fine. Yeah, it's like I, I oh, it. yeah. so this is the same movie again, but in a different city. <laughs> yeah. I'm in. Yeah. That's fine. You don't have to sell it to me anymore. 
Well, but it is an interesting observation, the fact that yeah. they maybe tried to, you know, launch this black James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure the studios, I'm sure Warners would have happily done 10 more sequels if they'd had the market for it. But I think, sure. I think the novelty did kind of wear off the, the true uh, black exploitation aficionados wanted something that was just more, you know, down in the trenches, a little bit more hardcore and, and not as glossy as what they got here. Well, Although, and yeah. so I don't know, I, I didn't listen to the previous episode, so I apologize okay. to your listener. Um, if this was covered then, the this scene goes from like 71 to 75 mm-hmm. at its yeah. height. And in those four years, they produced over 200 films that could be yeah. considered black exploitation films. Yeah. 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 Sure. They like lit a candle with a blowtorch and yeah, were surprised when it burnt out so fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most of them were independents. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Who, who delivered some pretty extreme content. Well, you know, when I saw that Criterion had another black exploitation bundle coming, because I think they've done this type of thing before. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is called black exploitation and beyond or beyond black exploitation. Yeah. And I was really hoping that they would get a film that Richard and I kind of mentioned in passing called the Mac. When we uh, talked yeah. about ZPG, that director, Michael campus did this film called the Mac, which uh, apparently I've, I've just checked again. It's not available on any streaming services. So it may be tied up in some kind of rights limbo or whatever, but uh, there are a lot of really interesting black exploitation films that go off in something other than the shaft slash superfly, you know, Cleopatra mm-hmm. Jones, Foxy Brown, um, but that are more kind of, you know, artistic, risky, unpredictable, uh, sui generis, as they say, kind of one of a kind films. And that's the one I want to talk about a little bit now called top of the heap. Um, that sounds like a segue. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly where we're going with it. You, you know me well. So, so top of the heap, uh, was, uh, written, directed and stars, and maybe was produced by Christopher St. John who played the, uh, Buford, who was the black militant character, uh, in the original Shaft film. He was kind of that voice of black consciousness. And Christopher St. John himself actually had auditioned for the lead role in Shaft, but uh, was selected for one of the supporting parts instead. And so Christopher St. John presumably got a decent little payday out of out of his, of his role there. And uh, he did not waste any time, uh, you know, exploiting that <laughs> to say on the poster, Christopher St. John, who you last saw in Shaft, <laughs> makes his directorial debut and also closes out his directorial career <laughs> with Top of the Heap. Um, it's an interesting uh, story, maybe in some ways more interesting than, than the one we just talked about. But uh, Shaft's big score is the main feature here. We're just going to do kind of a quick pass out over on this one and just kind of get a few first impressions. So, uh, well, Jason, let me ask you, what did you think of top of the heap? Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, had, to, I had to watch it a second time because the first time I wasn't totally there when I was watching it and I was like, you were distracted person. with other things or it was just yeah, and it was kind of hard to take night. it in. I okay. shouldn't have sure. even Got tried. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. And I looked up and, you know, he's a cop and then all of a sudden he's an astronaut and I'm like, oh, hold on, what the, <laughs> uh, don't look away. Not, right, right, right. Something's not uh, gelling very well. So it's one of those interesting movies that you can't watch in two sittings. You know, a lot of these, a lot of movies I'm fine watching in two sittings, mm-hmm. but this one, like you need the entire thing in one shot 
for it to make a lick of sense. Yeah, it, it's definitely a very weird, idiosyncratic, you know, personal vision that, yeah, some of the things don't quite translate as effectively, perhaps as he's envisioning them or mm-hmm. feeling them. Uh, let's get Richard's take, and then I've got a few more things to say about it. R- Richard, uh, top of the heap. Had you ever heard about this movie before, or knew anything about it? I, I, as you might recall, I owned it and didn't even realize I owned it. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, Code Red released it on on Blu-ray, and I had a habit because of their somewhat unreliable supply chain of mm-hmm. scooping scooping up piles of code red blu-rays when i had a chance and i bought this one without really giving it much of a look okay so when you brought it up i'm like oh i own i own this i should definitely <laughs> yeah. should watch it okay. i i really like this film yeah I don't, yeah i don't think it's really very good but like i don't think it's better than shaft's big score in a way but it's really promising. Like it's got ideas and they're interesting yeah, ideas, like right. really interesting ideas. He, it's a shame that he got shut down because he just needed to make more films. You know, it, that, that's interesting. I mean, we, you know, you and I, Richard talked about, um, uh, the way of the dragon, Bruce Lee's yeah. first directorial effort. And of course, of that. Michael Worth was on and we had a great talk. And and of course, Bruce was a a lot more accomplished as a movie star and, uh, and all, but, but there were some similarities in that kind of first time director who's kind of learning on the job. Um, Bruce Lee, obviously a much higher profile than Christopher St. John ever had or ever will have. Um, But, but yeah, exactly. This, this kind of same sort of, weird foray into genre material that the guy has an idea just it's the execution falters a little bit here and there uh this one here is is a very interesting dynamic because it's about a black cop in washington dc a lot of filmed on location shots here who uh you know presumably got into the force some years ago as a way of kind of making a name for himself uh, being on the side of the law rather than being on the, you know, viewed, you know, negatively or suspiciously. However, his career has not unfolded the way he thought it would. And he's kind of run into some of those barriers that promote, prevent him from, you know, getting promotions or working his way up the, uh, up the ladder of authority and, and, and all of that. But he's also taking a lot of flack from within his own community because he is a black man who's having to arrest other black men. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of interpersonal stuff. He's got issues going on at home. His his uh, relationship with his wife is pretty poor. His young daughter is coming of age and getting herself into some pretty uh, risky situations. You're right. There's a lot of interesting tensions and ideas and you know talking about social relevance and tapping into what's really going on in people's lives it feels like for all of its weirdness and artiness and dream sequences and this kind of hallucinatory quasi psychedelic stuff that's going on there um top of the heap sort of has some groundedness to it in in gritty everyday reality that uh, shaft's big score kind of glides right past Dear listener, when he says barrier, he explicitly means color barrier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, racism <laughs> and, and um, yeah, we'll give you a badge. We'll give you a gun. We'll put you on patrol. But that's about as far as you're ever going to get. Yeah. Boy, you know, exactly. Uh, 
I don't know. I just this was the first time I had heard of it when you yeah asked me. About I think it. it's and, yeah. I think it's pretty obscure. I don't yeah. think it's really gotten a lot of circulation. Uh, Richard, what more can you say about the Code Red release? Were there like any supplements or any other no, kind no, of? It's no, it's bare bones, which is often okay. the case with Code Red. Okay, mm-hmm. sure. I don't know much about that label. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure if you've heard like why this film is unavailable, right? Generally, for a long time, but he got um, its release was really poorly managed. Like he okay. sold it, he sold it to Fanfare Films, which are uh, yeah, like a, a distribution like an exploitation distribution label who do like biker films and exploitation films and Italian films, like the American release, like they did Hell's Angels on Wheels and Kill Them All and Come Back Alone. Okay. So (laughs) where would a film like this have been? Like, is this like drive-in movie stuff or downtown grindhouse theaters or or It seems like it was downtown grindhouse, but he clashed with them. He secretly gave this film to the Berlin Film Festival. Oh, okay. So and he it, went and it was, high art was, there, yeah. Yeah, and it was shown there, and it was well-received. It was in contention yeah. for the Gold Lion, and he lost to Pasolini's Canterbury Tales. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. And then okay. Yeah, he was invited to con. Okay. But the distributor hated this film because they were not expecting this film. And they refused the con invitation. Oh my goodness. How and, heartbreaking. Wow. This is sad. Yeah. Then he was sued by two people who said that they co-wrote the film with him and it got no credit. <sighs> so and, then it gets all tied up with yeah. litigation and uh, SAG SAG sort of the writer's guild, I mean, mm-hmm. sort of agreed, but it was never tried, and Fanfare released the film and set and the writer's guild sanctioned the film and it was pulled from release. Wow. So it really did get buried, like actively, yeah, actively buried, hostile, you know, suppression. Okay. Yeah. And apparently he made no follow up to this because no one would work with him again after that. Re- okay. So this wasn't like he shot his shot and then did he yeah. do much with his just acting career or did he really get, you know, kind of shunned from the whole scene? He does some acting. He does some TV okay. acting. Yeah. And he made a documentary in 2014 with his son that has to do with the fact that he got into um, Eastern religion. So apparently okay. he made he made a documentary about that. But he basically became more or less like a television actor. And they, okay. They, like the, the film business, we're done with him. Yeah. Wow. So right. he really got blackballed and, and kind yeah. of on the do not uh, – yeah. Do not contact list. Wow. And it seems largely because the dis- the distributor he sold this to didn't like this film and they didn't want to challenge the right heirs claim. So it just kind of sat in this. He's got a black mark on him, right? Huh. Because the writers contested this and nobody ever settled the issue. Huh. Well, <laughs> so I, you know, I can, I can imagine why a, maybe a producer might not like this film because it is so weird and, maybe difficult to market or it's it's going to reach a very niche audience i mean i don't i don't know i mean they, they specialize in really like you know they were looking for an exploitation film right something that was just going to be yeah. you know violence tits yeah. and ass just all that kind of stuff right so all, all the dream sequences and stuff are like no this isn't what we wanted at all <laughs> <laughs> right even yeah probably if they had maybe sexed them up or or yeah. made them a little bit more sensational but the, right this there's there's kind of an uh an intellectual you know or spiritual 
aspect to this. I mean, even even you know, there's the space scenes, but there's also that kind of you know back to Africa or that kind of tribal thing. I mean, yeah, they are running around with no clothes on, but it's not really erotic in a kind of crowd pleasing type of way. Uh, you know, of, of what you're pitching is to the people sitting in those you know cheap seats in the downtown theaters. They want to see a little bit more. You know, action of a certain sort and this is just too <laughs> sort of like jason's yeah. reaction you look away and all of a sudden well, this doesn't even make any sense so you're just like splicing random bits of film together and there's you know the, the thread is is very hard to hang on to but i can also yeah. see why it would be popular in europe yeah. oh yeah in yeah. this time for sure, uh, yeah. You you bring a, a black man into the Berlin Film Festival, and he's doing this artistic stuff. And even if it's clearly low budget, I mean, would you think of that little spinning Earth globe? <laughs> <laughs> well, that I mean, that worked perfectly for what they were. Yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to convey or what he yeah, was trying to convey. Right, they're not trying to you know give you uh, even like a two thousand one type of wow, mm-hmm. that's what space is like, you know. <laughs> they, they might also have been insinuating it was fake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously it, these these are signifiers. These are props. Uh, you know, he's he's having this kind of hallucinatory, visionary experience. Um, he's dislocated in his own body, and and looking for some means of escape, whether that's to a science fiction future or a primitive past. Uh, any, any way, any exit out of here <laughs> will 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 give him at least a little bit of relief. Uh, but you're right, the, the psychological tension that he's under uh, and the way he kind of cracks up underneath the mm-hmm. pressure of it all is kind of the the power of this film. I was really and impressed can... that he. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say I was really impressed that he didn't also like. He he seems to sort of suggest that he's wrong too. <laughs> oh yeah, he's like, not a likable not guy. That, I don't think anyway. Yeah, you know, that what causes him to be, you know, to crack up is is isn't real pressure, but he seems to acknowledge that his reaction is not completely justified. You know, mm-hmm. the, he gives good dialogue to his wife, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like really good dialogue in that scene. Like her mm-hmm. displeasure with him seems justified, and yeah, you know, the scene where he takes off with his girlfriend like her protest like you want me to leave with you and do what you know yeah she's got no, I mean, and then he does he dro- he drops her off in the middle of nowhere yeah. and it's just like wow what a jerk i mean i mean even the poster says you know he's a very angry man he's also a cop <laughs> which yeah. to me is not as much of a juxtaposition as they maybe would assume that it is you know yeah yeah uh, yeah, Jason, do you have any other thoughts uh, on the film? I yeah, I understand that. You know, um, kind of- I I can sort of, in a way, see it getting a good minimal life today oh, in yeah. the how Frank the racism in the police department is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just like yes, he has a partner and they have a f- good relationship. But he's the he doesn't understand that he's clearly not moving up the ladder, right? And then he's automatically presumed during a scene uh, by another police officer that he's just a common criminal. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, though, right, right. I mean, you know, kind of deserves the it, it, when you watch the scene, uh, dear viewer, kind of deserves it. But 
You know, yeah. it's, it's like there's absolutely no respect, and it's just building and building and building and building. Mm-hmm. And he has this power that, uh, I mean, just just breaks. Yeah, I mean, totally uh, cracks. Right when when he's being sort of you know pushed around by the cop, you know, he could have pulled his badge and gun at any minute. It's almost like he's waiting to see how far this is going to go before yeah. he finally says that's enough. And then same with that cabbie, um, you know, who. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 uh, that was a pretty again a pretty powerful scene. Uh, yeah, what do you know about the, the? I guess this guy is kind of a noted character actor cameo guy. So tell me about him, Richard. You've always got the insight on these bit players here. Yeah, he's he's got a he's got a big uh, footprint in this era. He's in a lot of early De Palma films. He's in mm-hmm. um, he's in um, Vendor's State of Things in a big role, basically okay. playing basically playing Francis Ford Coppola. But I, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I, I've always been very fond of him, so I was okay. really pleased to see him. Well, and those are powerful little vignettes, you know. I mean, I think they do capture the kind of kind of in-your-face, blatant racism that was freely expressed in many, you know, areas in many quarters at the time, and sadly seems to be coming around, uh, reviving at a time when you think we could have been past a lot of that stuff. Uh, but yeah, these, these, this, this film definitely probably would maybe warrant a, a full episode or a deeper treatment, except for the fact that it's been so buried for such a long time that there's really not a lot of discourse about it. There's not, mm-hmm. there haven't been a lot of reviews or, or, uh, you know, in-depth, you know, essays and again, a, a one and done director who was basically, uh, you know, kicked out of that part of the business, um, doesn't really give you a, a whole lot of depth to go on. So I don't know that we'll, you know, ever see Criterion put this out on a disc, but it, and it's probably not that, that worthy of, of the, the deluxe treatment, but it's a very fascinating piece of where uh, African-American filmmaking was, was going, or maybe even could have gone if, uh, if some of these uh, behind the scenes problems hadn't really thwarted uh, Mr. St. John from uh, pursuing other, ambitions and, and maybe expressing himself with a little bit more skill and clarity in, in subsequent projects. So yeah, that's really a shame. I, I hadn't kind of read up too much on all of that. Uh, but thank you for filling me in on the background there. So yeah. Any other thoughts on, on either of these films guys before we wrap things up? One of the things I'd say about this one is mm-hmm. when I was looking around and found some like people writing like modern reviews of it they were comparing this film to like films of abel ferrara Mm. which i i think they're doing because of bad lieutenant but what really struck me about it is people like abel ferrara got to make like six seven eight films before before they made really great films right they made a lot of films that are good and uneven and this one struck me as very similar to him in that respect you know, if you've seen yeah. like Driller Killer, it's not a it's not a great film, but it's an interesting film. Watch you yourself. See... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's what he kind of reminds me of is people who yeah. made a lot of really good independent films and became even better and better and better. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's a shame that this was it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, because like I say, the ideas are there. There's some some unique stuff going on, and uh, like I say, a, a sort of a personal vision that's being pursued here. Uh, some of it feels a little kitschy and a little bit, you know, obviously low budget, and you, you shoestring it 
the best he can. I mean, obviously he, like I said, he got a, probably got a reasonable payday from Shaft, but this was certainly not enough to bankroll a major production or, you know, get everything just the way maybe he saw it in his head. So anyways, yeah, I'll I'll give this one a a pretty enthusiastic recommendation. I think uh, with Shaft's big score, that's going to be part of a package that a lot of listeners probably will pick up at some point or another, just because I think Shaft has a lot of cultural cachet these days and uh mm-hmm. it should be a, i mean the, the cover and the packaging and all the extra bonus features uh in that upcoming shaft relief release definitely uh make it pretty appealing i'm, I'm pretty excited to to just get it and see what all's in it uh but top of the heap is probably not going to be on the channel for a real long time and i will probably continue my exploration of some of those other uh black exploitation and beyond films uh that the channel is serving up at least for the next couple months or so i have a few things there um Mm -hmm. first off this the top of the heap really falls well in my opinion into the beyond part yeah oh yeah absolutely Um, yeah because it's so far from what we commonly describe as black exploitations one thing that i found uh while trying to find anything about this movie was there's a TV program called Without Walls from England. Mm-hmm. This was in the early 90s. They had an episode called Kiss My Badass, Ice-T's Guide to Black Exploitation Films. Oh, okay. And it is terrific. Hmm. Um, that It's on YouTube, and I can send you the link. The other oh, thing, yeah, yeah. I'll post that in the show notes for sure. You, you had mentioned that you were hoping to see something on a little more on the artsy side in this uh, Beyond Black Exploitation, and I want to give you two recommendations. Okay. Uh, the first one is actually by Gordon Parks Jr. Yeah. Called Aaron Loves Angela. Yeah. And it's an ad- adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, cool. uh, okay. Put in Harlem and interracial devices and stuff like that. Yeah. And the other one is called The Final Come Down, uh, starring Billy D. Williams. Um, this it's a, just terrific. Okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like, this bundle does contain a lot of like sort of typical black exploitation things, but it contains a lot of really interesting side things in there. Like even the the Rudy Ray Moore films that they got a couple of, they're not typical black exploitation. Excellent. Well, I appreciate those recommendations. Yeah. Always recommend his movies. They are crazy. Also, Three the Hard Way is a lot of fun. Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I watched. There's a little uh, kind of 12 minute, you know, mm-hmm. kind of talking head intro. Definitely piqued a lot of my interest. That's kind of stoking me along to to keep the uh, exploration going there. So I'm definitely planning on checking out um, a bar of the first Black Superman and original yeah. gangsters. <laughs> Those two, um, yeah. Ooh, space is the place, and that. Yeah, yeah, that's a Sun Ra film, right? So. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, all right. Well, any, any updates you guys want to give us before we sign things off? I know Richard, you're kind of steady at the course. <laughs> that... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just hanging out, watching movies. Very <laughs> cool. Well, Jason, how about you? You got any creative stuff going on that you want to share with listeners? I suppose I'm slowly trying to work my way into voiceover narration. Yeah. Oh. I've, I see you've put in some auditions or kind of doing a little bit yeah, of trying. It's... testing out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I wish so, you all the best with that. Well, I yeah, appreciate definitely. that. That's terrific. I, well, I really do appreciate that. Put me down as a reference. I'll, I'll put in a good word for you. Wonderful. 
got a smooth voice. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for checking out this episode and hanging in there with us as we explore our way uh, through this uh, intriguing subgenre, black exploitation. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the conversation. I do welcome any feedback you've got. Uh, the next one we've got is going to continue on this genre-friendly vein that we've been in. It's called Beware the Blob. Uh, Richard and I are going to be joined by Jim Tudor, my friend over at Zeke Film, and we're going to uh, talk about another sequel of sorts <laughs> to the uh, Steve McQueen breakout, uh, The Blob, from I think it was the late 50s. So we'll have to figure out what was the delay between uh, the original Blob and Beware the Blob. But that's uh, that's for episode 120 coming up sometime down the road. So, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Who twists your spine till it feels like jelly and heats your blood till it's boiling wine? Who splits your heart in a zillion pieces? Chef! Baby, you blow your mind. Mm, he sure will. Well, who blinds your eyes with a trick and kisses and rocks you deep and turns your tide? Cracks your back in a billion pieces? Hmm? Chef! Baby, you blow your mind. The man's trouble, he's been to my He's a smooth cat and knows where it's at A bad spade don't pull your blade A super brother, a gone mother A cool dude and troubles his John Shaft Lord, who dimples your cheeks till your eyelids crinkle And cut your pulse to zero nine Freaks you out till you're downright simple. Shut. Baby, you blow your mind. Put a hole in your soul, honey. Hey, hey, hey. Mind. John said.